Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. Today, we will be discussing Come Follow Me, Doctrine and Covenants 137-38, Articles of Faith, and Official Declarations 1 and 2. And we are proud members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collection of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Another great member of the Dialogue Podcast Network is Beyond the Block. We've recommended them many times, but they have some really, really great recent episodes. The Martyrdom, which is their coverage of Doctrine and Covenants 135 through 136, pairs really well with our thoughts that we shared previously about Joseph Smith's martyrdom and what we can learn from it. I really, really loved their thoughts on applying it to justice and marginalized people today seeking for justice. Also, their episode Salvation After Death They had some really good discussions that I I don't know if they said the word disability or specifically named the disability community, but it was really, really connected to that. And I thought that was really interesting. For more information on the Dialogue Podcast Network, you can go to their website, dialoguejournal.com. Yay! So Doctrine and Covenants 137 and 138, they're both revelations received about life after death, although... 137 was received by Joseph Smith in 1836, and 138 was received by Joseph Fielding Smith in 1918. So they're really far apart, but the contents build off of each other. And then the Articles of Faith are points written by Joseph Smith summarizing the beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Official Declaration Number 1 is the announcement ending polygamy. And then official declaration number two is the announcement readministering the priesthood to worthy black males and allowing black people to participate in temple ordinances and blessings. Thank you for the summary. Yeah, I guess we can start off in section 137. The very first verse in section 137, I thought it was funny that Joseph Smith said, The heavens were opened upon us, and I beheld the celestial kingdom of God and the glory thereof, whether in the body or out, I cannot tell. Yeah, it's interesting to me that he puts that in there, that he was having an out-of-body experience and he felt like it was important to specify that. It just makes me think of like how much we in the church largely demonize people who have psychotic experiences or who use mind-altering drugs, who experience out-of-body experiences, and then people will say that was really stupid or that was evil or that was Satan coming to visit you, you know? And I just think that's kind of hypocritical when in our scriptures, Like in Doctrine and Covenants 137, the prophet is having an out-of-body experience and we are revering it. So I think we need to keep that in mind when other people are talking about their experiences. Another thing for people who are interacting with people with psychosis or with delusional attachments, and let me define what a delusional attachment is. So this is from das.crd.org. 
Co. A delusional attachment, in parentheses DA, is a term that psychotics have coined as an alternative to the term identity delusion, in which someone believes that they are another being than they actually are, whether that be a real person, a fictional character, a non-human creature, an object, etc. The term and experience of having a DA is exclusive to those who experience psychosis. Delusional attachments can be constant, recurrent, or they can be episodic. The term was coined by the psychotic community themselves and is not a medical term. And psychosis is a condition which affects the way your brain processes information. It causes you to lose touch with reality. You might see, hear, or believe things that aren't real. Psychosis is a symptom, not an illness. A mental or physical illness, substance abuse, or extreme stress or trauma can cause it. And really important Mm -hmm. thing for people who are experiencing delusional attachments, meaning people believing that they are someone who they are not, or believing that they are seeing something that is not, quote, real in your mind. That's not a delusional attachment. That's separate. But still, important thing is when interacting with people who are experiencing psychosis is to not reality check them without asking permission. Reality checks consist of telling your friend that they are not the subject of their delusional attachment. And there's lots of other advice there about how to help someone who's going through an episode of psychosis without reality checking and how to support them. And I haven't even gotten into like neurodivergent attachments, kin and interjects. But anyway, that's just a really basic thing that I realized that we haven't talked about on here. And this relates to what Joseph Smith was experiencing here. And I think we as a church can learn from this principle and apply it in how we view spiritual experiences in other churches Hmm. instead of invalidating them and being like, well, that doesn't fit into my idea of reality. Your vision of the Buddha doesn't fit into my idea of reality. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That is just so insulting, A, and B, just is hypocritical when we consider that we have our own spiritual experiences that make up the stories and our identity in our church and they're important to us and other people have other important spiritual experiences so I think it's important to remember that we shouldn't prescribe our reality onto other people without their permission whether that is in a neurodivergent or mental health sense or whether that's in a religious sense. So, yeah, we haven't super talked about this before. I'd love to ask for clarification on something you just said. Do you mean we shouldn't reality check people because we don't understand their experiences or because if we pull them out of whatever state they're in, is it harmful in a different way? Oh, 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 yes. When I was talking about religious experiences, I was talking more about the invalidation, but in regards to people who experience delusional attachments or other psychotic symptoms, yes, it is extremely harmful to reality check someone. It's something that I know I need to learn to be better at because it's so easy to be like, well, you're not actually that fictional character in the manga that I read and I have an affection for that character and you saying that you are that character in my mind is kind of weird and insulting but like it really doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter if I find it weird or insulting that someone thinks that they are that character to them that is their reality in that moment and for me to pop their bubble it can be really 
earth-shattering for people and can cause people to spiral and have intense meltdowns and breakdowns if someone reality checks them when they're not in a safe space to process it or they don't have the tools to process it. There are alternatives to reality checking and there are methods and best practices for reaching out and supporting someone who's experiencing something like that if they're at a risk of harming themselves, but I don't have those at the top of my head. Yeah, I think that's something we can definitely talk about some more. And I want to be able to give you and anybody listening or reading this like actual recommendations from people with psychosis on how to approach a situation like that. But for now, just Mm -hmm. remember everybody to not reality check people because it can be really, really harmful. Anyway, I didn't even plan on talking about that. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> okay, 137. So verse 7 talks about all those who have died without a knowledge of the gospel and says that if they died without a knowledge of the gospel and they would have accepted it, then they are accepted into the celestial kingdom without needing to be baptized. So Contextually, for people who haven't read 137 recently, Joseph Smith has this vision of the celestial kingdom of the highest degree of heaven, and he's surprised to see his brother Alvin there, who had died years before, and he's like, wait, why is Alvin here? He hasn't been baptized. And and verse 7 says the Lord came to him and basically says that people can be automatically accepted into the celestial kingdom if they would have received the gospel if they had been permitted to tarry. And I thought that was really interesting. Part of me is just kind of like, why are we working so hard to do baptisms for the dead then? (laughs) If if these people, because this is doctrine, right? This is in the scripture. We consider this doctrine, but we don't talk about this very much. It's always like, oh, we have to do baptisms for the dead. Everybody needs ordinances. You have to have this ordinance in order to get into the celestial kingdom. But we rarely talk about this kind of catch-all there, you know, which is really interesting to me. I was thinking about it, and I was like, what is the discrepancy? Because there's a couple assumptions here, I think. Initially, my assumption is that they're one and the same. And that's where I think it was confusing me at first, because initially I was thinking, okay, if everybody who would have accepted the gospel, if they hadn't died, immediately goes to the celestial kingdom, then there is no need for baptisms for the dead. Because my assumption was that everybody who dies without the gospel would have accepted it had they been permitted to tarry, you know, and that's a false assumption, right? That's incorrect. Hmm. Then I realized, okay, so there is a difference there. There are some people who die without having the gospel who would have accepted it. And then there are people who would not have accepted it, even if they had stayed. And that's why we Mm -hmm. need baptisms for the dead. But those people, the latter category, who would not have accepted it had they stayed, why would they then choose to accept someone doing a baptism for them? Does that make sense? Yes. Are you leading up to something? I am leading up to something. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So that didn't make sense to me because we're taught that... We are the same people, like our personalities, our souls, etc., are the same after we're dead. It's mm. just that we have different bodies, right? The, there's a dissonance between not choosing to accept the gospel hypothetically in this 
earth life and choosing to accept the gospel in the spirit world. So there's some sort of change there. There's some sort of choice upon them that pivots them to accepting it. Mm -hmm. Some sort of life experience after they're dead that influences them. Yeah, we learn more about that in 138, where that pivotal moment of like, why would we be the same people, but then have some kind of choice or change? It talks about in 138, how after we die, we will have a chance to continue learning and growing and that there will be a lot of work on the other side of the veil for people in learning and growing and teaching. 137 as a whole, I love it so much because it comes down to desire. And that's the requirement pretty much above everything else. Like if you didn't know about it, then you wouldn't really have a desire either way, I would say, right? That makes sense. But once you learn about it after and you have a desire to learn more and to participate, then you can do it. And baptism for the dead is like a way to help you move forward with that desire. And then you can also desire not to follow the gospel once you learn more after you die. Yeah, I like that you pointed that out. I think that does a good job of filling in that gap that I was confused about. Ultimately, we have to look at it like an accommodation. Yeah. This is something that the restored gospel gives us that we didn't have before. Like Joseph was told so many times and it always made him uncomfortable that Alvin's in hell because he never was baptized. Yeah. This is the accommodation. Again, I love that the accommodation is based on desire more than anything because that connects to people who don't have access to ordinances even on earth while they're living it's the accommodation for them too. Like LGBTQ people who can't go through the temple, their desires are seen by the Lord, are understood, and they'll be given opportunities after this life as well. Yeah, that's really affirming. Finding these little tidbits like this, that can really make the difference for someone. Maybe not for me. I think it's too late for me. (laughs) Well, I was going to say it can be like a wonderful, beautiful thing for someone, but it can also be heartbreaking because they see the injustice and then they're like, okay, but why isn't it happening now? Yeah. Just like when the priesthood was taken away from black people and temple ordinances from black people, that was an injustice and they just had to choose to participate or not knowing that it was an injustice. Yeah. I actually wanted to talk a little bit about age of accountability before we moved on from 137. Yeah. I have some issues with the concept of the age of accountability, and this is mentioned in verse 10 of Doctrine and Covenants 137, where it says, And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. Reading this verse, I have been troubled by this concept of accountability, and I couldn't really put my finger on why it bothers me, this age of accountability thing. In the past, I've even wondered why the age for baptism is so young, because one could make a case that children don't really have informed consent about what being baptized into the church means in terms of all their legal records and the life that they're choosing at eight years old, right? Because Mm -hmm. everybody just talks about it being about Jesus 
and committing to him, but they don't really talk about what that commitment entails and practically in the church in regards to the word of wisdom. Membership records. Membership records, if they end up being queer. Anyway, Mm -hmm. all these other considerations. So part of me is kind of like the age of accountability should be raised. But then I thought about this a little bit more from the intellectual disability perspective. And there's this series of essays on By Common Consent, which is a Mormon intellectual thought blog. This is written by B. Hodges. Blair? Oh, yeah. It probably is Blair Hodges. <laughs> we just referenced him in like our last episode, Awkward. didn't we? <laughs> yeah. So I've been referencing Blair Hodges long before I even knew who Blair Hodges was, but it was just kind of funny. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but this is a series that Blair wrote all the way in 2013, or at least this part of the series was written in 2013. This is part five mm-hmm. of his series, Intellectual Disability and Mormon Thought. He's talking about the issue of accountability and how we've been kind of grappling with that and scriptures which discuss little children since the 1830s. In it, he talks about how Bruce R. McConkie added an entry on idiocy in his book, Mormon Doctrine, and it simply said years Mm -hmm. of accountability. And Blair says that this not only reminds us of the longevity of a by then outdated term, but indicates that intellectual disability was at least on McConkie's radar enough to merit inclusion. Anyway, he discusses some logical inconsistencies between what Bruce R. McConkie is saying about the years of accountability for intellectually disabled people and Andrew C. Skinner, who wrote a book called The Garden Tomb, um, and Andrew Skinner is from BYU. In this 1977 Enzyme article that Bruce R. McConkie wrote called The Salvation of Little Children, Blair says about this article, quote, importantly, McConkie avoids explicit reference to the pre-mortal life as an explanation for their cases, meaning the cases of the, quote, mentally deficient. But he says it is implicit that people who don't die young must need to encounter the trials of mortality. He refers to Joseph Smith's teaching that many are Quote, taken away in infancy that they may escape the envy of man and the sorrows and evils of this present world. They were too pure, too lovely to live on earth. Then Blair continues, if this is so, how can it be the case that the mentally deficient are equated to little children who die before the age of accountability? Were they somehow less pure or lovely than little children who die, but but slightly more pure and lovely than those born without obvious disabilities? Which I was like, ooh, mic drop there. Um, At the same time, Mm. McConkie accidentally leaves the door open to the question of moral and intellectual development of people with disabilities. Can they still be considered to be experiencing mortality for the purpose of learning and growth? These questions create tensions when vestigial remnants of Joseph Smith's teachings are placed alongside newer theological developments, which were not originally discussed by Joseph. More often, they simply remain unacknowledged. And then he talks about what Skinner said in this book of his, quote, Skinner is essentially claiming that if a person lives a long life as a disabled person or dies as a child, the work required of, quote, normal adults must have already been completed. That way, there are no exaltation freebies. We should feel bad that we are actually the developmentally delayed ones. Because Skinner was claiming people who were intellectually disabled 
had actually been more valiant and more successful in the pre-Earth life that they already proved themselves in the mm. pre-Earth life. And that's why they don't yeah. have to prove themselves now. And that we are the ones, non-developmentally disabled people, they're actually developmentally challenged spiritually because they weren't as valiant in the pre-mortal realm, which is, oof, that's some uh, mental gymnastics there. And then Blair goes on to share... This comment that someone wrote on timesandseasons.org, well, it's in response to Nate Oman's article, Mormonism's Poisoned Theodicy, and this person's name is Catherine Leonard Soper. Soper says, I have a toddler with Down syndrome, and I utterly reject the he's retarded because he was extra righteous concept. Such reasoning separates people like my son from the rest of us, and that's unfair. He's a person. He's fundamentally the same as you and me. And apparently that's a deeply uncomfortable truth for us to swallow. And we're scared stiff by random nature. So we come up with the lines like special kids come to special parents. But how many of us want to be this special? And if this were true, why are 90% of fetuses with Down syndrome aborted? I had someone tell me an anecdote about a state president prophesying that people like my son cast Satan out of heaven with their superpowers and thus came to earth unaccountable so that Satan couldn't get his revenge. People don't perpetuate this crap or anything like unto it. We don't know why some people have Down syndrome and some don't. We think it's such a tragedy for a child to have Down syndrome that we come up with an excuse for God. This only betrays our terrible prejudice. Labeling people as superhuman is just as discriminatory as labeling them subhuman. Suggesting that my son is here simply to coast through life and be a lesson to others is an insult. He is here to learn and grow just like the rest of us. If his accountability is limited or even non-existent, that doesn't neuter his mortal experience. Okay, so I've been cringing so hard at like the past five minutes, but I love that quote so much. I'm so glad you brought that in. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah. So, okay. Let me paraphrase here so, so that you can see where I'm building up to. Mm -hmm. The problem with McConkie's statement, which is that intellectually disabled people are somehow more valiant than everybody else, but not valiant enough to die, which is problematic because like, uh, are you leading down to um, saying that intellectually disabled people, it's okay for them to let them die? That's a eugenics thing right there. And then what mm -hmm. Skinner is saying, this whole superhuman concept and that they're actually the developmentally advanced ones and people without developmental disabilities are, are the ones who need to learn and grow on earth. And that's why we have the, the trials and the privilege of being on this earth. And then Ugh. we have this lady categorically rejecting that and saying, no, this is actually discriminatory. And I a hundred percent agree with her. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this age of accountability thing and this whole concept of you can only be baptized if you have some sort of measurement of accountability, it's supported by and it perpetuates these sort of lines of thinking that either place disabled people on a pedestal, but yet somehow make us like less human, you know, it makes it so that people who are too young or 
too disabled cannot be taught or learned from mistakes. It, it makes it so that people who are too young or too disabled are essentially perfect and don't need to live, which ugh, eugenics. It makes it so that people who are not young and not disabled in that way are automatically held accountable through repentance when actually a lot of times people get away with feeling better about the way they've harmed other people by quote repenting either by the sacrament or by baptism except this whole time they haven't actually apologized you know they haven't actually done any reparations to the people that we've harmed and we see this when we're talking about blacks in the priesthood you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that's not actual repentance like we talk about adults being held accountable these are adults who are making these policies and receiving these revelations about who can receive the priesthood who can be exalted and theoretically adults have the gift accountability except they are using it to evade accountability because they're able to just go to church on Sunday and take the sacrament. And therefore that magically washes away whatever racist thoughts they had, you know, or whatever abusive things someone did behind closed doors. Like, no, forgiveness from God doesn't matter if you haven't made things right or at least tried to make things right with the person that you hurt. And therefore I propose that we should get rid of the age of accountability for baptism. Hmm. (laughs) Anyway, I want to write an essay about this because I want to explore this concept further. What if we did not have the age of accountability? What if we completely separated the concept of accountability from baptism and baptism was not about accountability at all? Anyway. So it's more about... The concept of accountability than age of accountability or years of accountability. Is that right? Um, yes. I mean, I guess they're connected because of how we talk about it. Yes. I think having an age of accountability for baptism makes it seem like it actually takes away accountability from adults, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we don't talk enough in the church about what real accountability looks like. You know... It's interesting, like, if you think about how there's like a structure of how we teach children in a school, but we know that children learn in different ways, people learn in different ways, and different things are helpful, and it can't work for you to say, when you are this number of an age, you need to be at this point. I feel like I could say most people wouldn't fit every category of like where they're supposed to be when they're a kid at a certain age. Like some people will be ahead of that. Like (laughs) I bet you were reading bigger books than, (laughs) than you were supposed to be reading when you were like a kid, you know? Um, And some people will be behind certain uh, mile markers, I guess. And to say like, okay, when you're eight, that's when you're accountable and to draw a hard line, like, it doesn't make sense on both ends where some people would be ahead of that and some people would be behind that. And I, I don't know, we, we compensate for behind it with, with saying, oh, they're not accountable because they're disabled. But there's a lot of cases where people wouldn't be diagnosed with a disability or neurodivergency and defining accountability is really 
difficult anyway. And a lot of times it's more put in the hands of parents and bishop than the actual kid, which goes back to the concept of desire. Yeah. Like, why why are we forgetting about desire? Why does that suddenly erase if people are somehow deemed unaccountable? Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I like the concept of desire a lot more. And I feel like it's talked about in earlier verses, but then we're brought back to this other measure that can't work for everybody. Desire is really important. And I also think that we need to start talking about accountability as a choice too, instead of like a state of being like, oh, this person hmm. is accountable. Like, what does that even mean? You know, my autistic mm-hmm. brain is like, what? please quantify that for me, you know, but like, yeah, yeah. but looking but in the court system, in non-Mormon context, accountability is really just evaluated on whether or not you knew what you were doing and you knew the consequences and you chose to do it, you know, and that's an oversimplification, but like people choose to be accountable. When we talk about like people being accountable for saying harmful things on the internet we're not talking about whether or not they are above a certain age or whether or not they're intellectually disabled or not you know or whether or not they are morally good or bad or not because that's that's the way accountability in mormonism makes it seem like you know and when we're talking about trying to hold people accountable we're trying to have them acknowledge the harm that they've done and face the natural consequences of their choices, you know, and they choose to be accountable. Looking Mm -hmm. at it as a choice, as a desire, both of those are way better and way more practical than looking at it as some sort of amorphous state of being, which excludes disabled people, you know? Yeah, I would be cautious around talking about desire for accountability, though, because I think like... Some people could read that and say like, well, no matter how hard I desire, I'm not going to be no. accountable according to certain standards. True. Like, you know, while you were speaking, I was also thinking about how I don't think that accountability can be consistent enough in a person's life, regardless of ability or disability to measure it this way Yeah. accurately. Does that make sense? Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely fluctuated in my life as well. Like the whole reason I was able to get an annulment was because I was of a quote unsound mind at the time of our marriage. And therefore the marriage was not legally valid because I entered it without accountability, essentially. Right. Yeah. And that was upheld by the court. And retroactively, Mm -hmm. that marriage was never valid. Does that mean because I wasn't accountable in that instance that I automatically get to go to the celestial kingdom? Like, no, like I'm still accountable in other ways. And still people who have mental illnesses are still accountable for our choices. But yeah, I like what you said about it fluctuating and it not being one thing that a person is, you know, we can be accountable in some ways and not accountable in other ways. No, very true. Yeah. And I was thinking, I wonder if you can get an annulment for baptism. And in my understanding, kind of the only way you can do that is if you share your desire and you leave the church, right? You take your name off the church record. Yeah. Because if you decide to come back to the church, you do have to be rebaptized. 
but how that is based on desire and not accountability. I mean, I guess you could state you were not accountable and that's why you're deciding to remove your records, but that's also based on desire. I, I just don't know of a case where if someone was maybe undiagnosed and then baptized and then people determined like, oh, wait, you're disabled and you're not accountable, like, would their baptism be annulled? I feel like that is another wrench in like our whole paradigm of how baptism works, you know? How we standardize the process. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something we could definitely explore more later on. Are you ready to move to 138? (laughs) Yes, let's move on. Okay. (laughs) Verse 17 talks about resurrection, talks about being restored to your perfect frame. Yeah, I just wanted to affirm disabled bodies being whole and worthy and perfect in and of themselves and remind people that if your disability is like so intrinsically tied to your identity that you can't imagine living without it and wouldn't want to, then you don't have to be forced into a body or a mind that you don't want to be in the resurrection. Yes. And verse 17, I feel like it does a good job at that. I feel like a lot of verses that talk about being resurrected, a lot of times it's like every hair will be restored. And it it talks about very specific things that we understand on earth. Verse 17, it's a little more vague, but pay attention to the ending here. I'm going to read it. Their sleeping dust was to be restored unto its perfect frame, and then it defines perfect frame, bone to his bone, and the sinews and the flesh upon them, the spirit and the body to be united, never again to be divided, that they might receive a fullness of joy. So this verse, it defines perfect frame as having your spirit and your body being reunited. And it doesn't say what the body looks like or what the spirit looks like. It's just saying that they're united in one, never to be divided. If that's the definition of perfect frame, like, hello, yeah, disability is going to exist in the celestial kingdom. Uh, This is probably the most affirming verse I've read or at least caught while I'm reading about resurrection for disability. Yeah, I really love that. Thank you for saying that. Verse 20, I thought it was interesting I mean, this isn't the only verse that talked about this, but I'm going to pick it apart a little bit. It talks about how Jesus is not the one who actually goes to visit the people in spirit prison. Like, that Jesus sends missionaries, basically, is the entire concept here. And in verse 20, it says, But unto the wicked he did not go, and among the ungodly and the unrepentant who had defiled themselves while in the flesh his voice was not raised, 21, neither did the rebellious who rejected the testimonies and the warnings of the ancient prophets behold his presence, nor look upon his face. This is talking about Jesus's ministry during the three days before he was resurrected, right? I just thought it was interesting because like that, first of all, that whole breakdown that I did earlier about why we need baptism and obviously we can still learn and grow while in the spirit world after being dead, even if we had chosen differently in this life, right? That's not really affirmed in this because these are some of the people that would require baptism for the dead, right? Under those conditions, the people, the unrepentant people, the people who would not have been baptized had they 
tarried on earth, right? That's the definition of unrepentant, right? Mm, I just did not like how it used this word defiled themselves while in the flesh. I thought that was really graphic and just really ableist and racist. Anyway, I clicked on the footnotes for this verse and it mentions Alma chapter 40 verses 13 through 14. Those who chose evil instead of good, how the devil entered their house, how these people will be cast out with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It redirects you to spirit prison in the topical guide. It redirects you to 1 Nephi chapter 10, verse 21. How if you sought wickedness, then you are unclean, and no unclean thing can be in the presence of God, which implies that Jesus didn't go to these people because he's too clean for them. They are too dirty for mm. him. It redirects you to verse 7 in, in that same section of Doctrine and Covenants 138, how missionaries have to go to visit spirits in prison because Jesus can't go there personally, which does not make sense under the definition of an all-powerful God, who Jesus is, and how they were rebellious. And mm. and then it redirects you to Moses, chapter 6, verse 57. Um, again, no unclean thing can dwell with God. And as someone who is unrepentant now, who lives in sin because I'm queer, I have sex, I break the word of wisdom, I have tattoos, I have piercings, etc. I just really do not like the assumption that we're dirty and that we are rebellious. I found a study that linked neurodivergence and faith um, because this is my hypothesis that I've been talking about for a while. You've heard me talk about it like with Ezra Booth and people who in the Doctrine and Covenants, like apostatized, like I put that in quotes, and how many of them turned out to be neurodivergent or showed traits of neurodivergency. And so when I found that study a while ago, I was like, mind blown, because there's the evidence I've been looking for to support my hypothesis. And this article, it's not a perfect article. There's a lot of things wrong with the wording that they use. Um, It's very dated in how it talks about autism. But I think that it still offers a lot of insights that are relevant. So this article is called Religious Belief Systems of Persons with High-Functioning Autism. And it is by Catherine Caldwell-Harris and Caitlin Fox Murphy and Tessa Velasquez in the Department of Psychology at Boston University and Patrick McNamara in the Department of Neurology at Boston University School of Medicine. They did a couple different studies talking about how cognitive functions kind of work with religion. They go into the characteristics of, in quotes, high-functioning autistics and correlated patterns of religiosity. But the two things that I want to focus on are these two different studies. The first was they looked for autistic people mentioning whether they were religious or not and users from their neurotypical group, their like control group, on a blog that has over 25,000 people on it. And then they talk about how they evaluated the religious beliefs from a certain coding protocol. Anyway, point is, in this study, they found that religious beliefs were found to differ significantly between the autistic and neurotypical populations. Also, by the way, I should mention that this presents a false dichotomy between autistic people and neurotypical people. There's a lot of people who are not autistic who are not neurotypical. So I'm just going to replace neurotypical with allistic, actually, because I I think that's more accurate. But anyway, 
individuals who are autistic were less likely to belong to an organized religion than their holistic counterparts and were more likely to create their own religious belief system. Hmm. The own construction, meaning their own religious belief system category, comprised 16% of the autistic population as compared to only 6% of the holistic population. Autistic individuals also demonstrated higher rates of non-belief identities, such as atheism, 26%, and agnosticism, 17%. In the holistic group, only 17% of the population were atheists and 10% were agnostic. I say those percentages, but honestly, I think the graph is just really striking. I'll try to describe it, but you can kind of see they have these four different groups, Christian, atheist, agnostic, own construction along the x-axis, and it's a bar graph, and the y-axis is the group percentage, meaning what percentage of autistic versus holistic people are members of that group, and Christian, it's like almost double, like the neurotypical people, it's almost double of the autistic people in the Christian group, which is really interesting. Mm. Wow. And everything else for holistic people is like less than half of that. So like like 38% it looks like of holistic people are Christian. And then the next category for holistic people is like 16% for atheists. So that's like half of that. Versus autistic people, it's spread out much more evenly with the highest percentage being in the atheism category, which is really interesting. And then they also conducted an internet questionnaire. Respondents gained access to our survey from links posted on popular online autism communities and did so on a voluntary basis. 105 individuals consisting mainly of undergraduates at a Northeastern University taking psychology classes comprised our neurotypical comparison group, which Mm, I think that's flawed in and of itself because a lot of autistic people who are undiagnosed take psychology classes because they're trying to figure out how people work so that we can have like smoother social interactions. Um, anyway, oh, and it says that their autistic group was mostly white. So there's some caveats there. Hmm. Majority of both populations were younger than 30 years old. Anyway, the results, again, religious beliefs were found to differ significantly between the autistic and holistic populations. As was found in the content analysis of the discussion forum, so the first study, the autistic questionnaire respondents were less likely than their holistic counterparts to belong to an organized religion. Autistic individuals were more likely to be atheists than were holistic people. Their own construction belief category was also found to be proportionally greater in the autistic population than in the holistic population. And then again, there's another graph, and this time they have more categories along the x-axis. They have agnostic, atheist, Christian, own system, and Jewish. And honestly, first thing you see right away looking at this graph is that 40% of the holistic or NT people were Christian, like it's like the hugest bar. The next highest thing on this graph is the amount of autistic people who are atheists, and that's at like 33% almost on this graph. It's uh, really striking the differences here. This article goes on to speculate why, how cognitive differences possibly plays into why autistic people are more likely to be atheist and less likely to be Christian, etc. But point is, there are definite flaws with it, but I think it's, it's really 
illuminating in the sense that this is one of the first things I've seen that gives credence to what I've been trying to say all this time, which is mm-hmm. as a neurodivergent person, it's really difficult to be a member of this church. And that a lot of people who leave the church, even if they don't have a diagnosis yet, their minds still work the way that they work, you know, even if they don't have the words to describe it, they say, oh, um, it was not an environment where I could ask questions, you know, that's an autistic urge. Anyway, so so when we're talking about people being wicked, or being rebellious, or being unclean, that's really dangerous, because you were talking about things that people really cannot help because of our neurotype. We cannot help that we think this way. Like Mm. our brains are flexible. Yes, we can change how we think to an extent. Like I don't want to say that we can't learn and grow and heal sometimes from trauma, etc. But like things that are integral to our identities and our neurotypes, they're just being cast off as like rebellious or unclean. And I think that's really dangerous. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, I just have some things to say about official declaration one okay so official declaration one was the the manifesto about dissolving the practice of polygamy in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints like i said earlier in our previous episodes this was a really difficult thing for me to talk about not because polygamy is difficult for me to talk about but Because a lot of people nowadays in the church and even people who have left the church but are still talking about it, treat it as if it's like this taboo, shameful, traumatic, terrible thing. But to me as a non-monogamous person, as someone who is potentially polyamorous, that is really hurtful. It, it, It feels like they're saying that my identity as someone who has the capacity to love more than one person at a time is shameful and traumatic. Yeah, so I wanted to share some things about this declaration that perhaps you might not hear from other people because I I think a lot of people will view this declaration as kind of like a ah, phew moment, you know, like a Wipe our mm-hmm. brow, sort of like, okay, we got away from that weird ass thing. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And now life is back to normal, which is kind of like how people act about the pandemic, <laughs> how non disabled people <laughs> act about the pandemic. Like, oh, okay, we passed through it. We had to go through it, but it's done now. We can put it behind us. But no, it's not back to normal for disabled people in the pandemic. And it's not back to normal for polyamorous people after official declaration one yeah i personally view this declaration as almost a tragedy if we're going to live the practice of mourning with those that mourn i want to air some of the reasons why it makes me sad a little bit yeah so first of all it talks about in this declaration that plural marriages were not performed after this point Uh, that's not exactly true Many were still performed, but it kind of, it was siphoned out. Many people still lived the law as much as they could. It just, this declaration just made it much, much harder for them. So Wilford Woodruff issued the manifesto, which was accepted by the church as authoritative and binding on on October 6th, 1890. And I think it's really interesting that in the introduction to this section in the Doctrine and Covenants, 
It says that the Bible and the Book of Mormon teach that monogamy is God's standard for marriage unless he declares otherwise. But really, in the text of the manifesto, it does not say that. Wilford Woodruff does not make references to monogamy being God's standard. In fact, Wilford Woodruff talks about how it would be unwise to practice it now because of the opposition of 60 million people, basically the American government, the threat of prison and the harm against families, the potential of losing our places of worship, of losing temples and being able to do baptisms for the dead. He basically is saying, I have to make a hard choice. This is the choice I have to make in order to save us sort of thing. Mm. But he does not use the justification that monogamy is God's standard. He does not say that there. And I think that's really important. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And to me, it feels like this declaration forced, forced us. It feels like going back into the closet collectively as a church, as non-monogamous people, as polyamorous people, because it's unsafe. Mm. I think a lot of queer people can relate to that because sometimes there are times where it's unsafe to be openly queer or it's unsafe to be openly neurodivergent. But that doesn't mean that those are good times. It doesn't mean that we aren't still yearning to express ourselves and to live authentically, right? Anyway, some historical facts about this. Leading up to the manifesto, there was a change in attitude around polygamy in Utah. Again, I'm taking these quotes and these facts from the Polygamous Wives Writing Club from the Diaries of Mormon Pioneer Women, collected and commented on by Paula Kelly Harline. She notes that between 1884 and 1890, the number of women who defended polygamy in the Women's Exponent Journal decreased and their tone changed. Those who defended it tended to, quote, reproduce the voice of their male leaders rather than fashion a voice of their own or offer personal reasons for keeping the practice. So before 1884, there were a lot of women who were defending polygamy and explaining why they chose it, but that significantly decreased. And one woman, Susa Young Gates, even accused Mormon women of desiring the manifesto. In 1893, she offered a retrospective view of women who had treated the holy principle plural marriage with neglect, sneers, mocking abuse, and even cursing and railing, and went on to say that Mormon women collectively, herself included, should recognize their sin. Her opinion was that polygamy was abandoned by the church because of the negative attitudes towards it by the Mormon women themselves, including herself. Which is really interesting. I don't know that I necessarily agree with her entirely. Like, I definitely think Wilford Woodruff had his own reasons for issuing the manifesto. Like I said, kind of going back into the closet. But, like, I see this today still. I see a lot of negative attitudes towards polygamy towards non-monogamy, towards polyamory, towards these kinds of queer relationship structures from Mormon women, even progressive Mormon women or progressive post-Mormon or ex-Mormon women. And that is really hurtful to me. Anyway, the book also notes that Wilfred Woodruff basically inherited a mess when he became president of the church. There was pressure from internal fanatics who saw Armageddon and what they perceived to be a fight between God's law and man's law. Knowledge that polygamous families 
were suffering from polygamous raids. So there's two reasons. Third reason for issuing the manifesto, knowledge that most Mormons were not polygamous and yet were suffering for the practice of a few. A fourth reason, the threat of losing church real estate, including sacred temples. And a fifth reason, a culture shifting away from polygamy. But I would argue they never really fully embraced it. The monogamous attitudes were still ruling everything, I would say. Hmm. And then after issuing it, I think it's also really important to note that some people might not acknowledge that the change from living polygamy to it being outlawed, not practiced by the church, was really confusing to polygamous families. In the mm-hmm. manifesto, Woodruff wrote um, that he his advice was to refrain from contracting any marriage forbidden by the law of the land. So he was saying that no further polygamous marriages would be sanctioned by the church. Catherine Danes points out that at the same time he said that, the church leaders also gave them little guidance after the manifesto was issued about what that statement meant for those already in plural marriage. Hmm. Carmen Hardy believes that many Mormons during this time felt that there was confusion as to what was and was not permissible. Like, okay, does that mean that we have to get divorced or stop seeing each other if we're already in polygamous marriages? Like, does this just mean that we can't enter new ones? Mm. Wilfred Woodruff, behind the scenes, he said that polygamists should continue to support their wives, plural, and told this to his apostles within a month after the manifesto had been voted on at the October conference. A lot of polygamous men were reluctant to abandon their families. They felt like this was pushing them to abandon their families. After the manifesto, wives still feared the law about polygamy and husbands could still be pulled into court. So like, yes, they went back into the closet, but that doesn't mean that the danger was not over. It just meant they had to keep up appearances. Quote, for example, in the spring of 1891, Lorena Larson's husband secretly sent for her to come to Manti where he was living with his first family while working on the temple. When she arrived, she felt obliged to hide her identity and discreetly told some people to tell her husband that, quote, a lady friend from Colorado was there. Her husband chopped wood for her in a skirt and a shawl to look like a woman and deflect suspicion. Wow. Yeah. It seems they had reason to be cautious because Freja Day, another woman who was polygamous, was subpoenaed that same spring of 1891 to, quote, appear in the case of E.A. Day, her husband. Her husband was arrested and agreed to appear in Colorado. In 1893 in Salt Lake, Florence Dean was awaiting the birth of her fifth child and wrote that it was dangerous for her husband to visit her. The danger he faced Mm. was probably the possibility of being caught coming to see a pregnant second wife. This just really, really bothers me that people are celebrating the fact that that people who love each other can't visit each other, can't like express their love for each other, can't live together if they want to, can't share intimate family moments with each other like the birth of their child. How can you say that that is a good thing? Definitely, there are some situations that might have been improved because of this, but that doesn't discount the fact that there are many people who wanted to be in polygamy, who loved their partners, who loved their metamors, basically the other wives, Mm -hmm. and who saw themselves as a family and who couldn't live as a family like they wanted to. It's this kind of thing and this the kind of rhetoric, the celebration of Declaration Number 1, that makes me feel 
unwelcome and unsafe in even progressive Mormon spaces. I don't feel like I can be myself. I feel like I am alienated. I feel like people will think I'm weird or gross for saying, like, I understand how some polygamous people felt, how I personally care about more than one person. And it just makes me wonder, like, if we were all pushed collectively back into the closet by the manifesto, when will it be safe for us to come out? Because it's not safe for non-monogamous people to come out in the church. It's becoming more and more safe for queer people in terms of romantic and sexual attraction to come out or in terms of gender identity, but it's not safe for queer relationship styles and orientations to come out. <sighs> anyway, so that, that's been weighing on me and I don't know if I personally want to be the one to pioneer that. I just, I know that I'll get a lot of hate for it and it might break me. So, but anyway. Thank you for sharing all that. That is a perspective that like we never hear when we talk about official declaration one. And I was wondering that while I was reading, I was really hoping you would open up and share more about your thoughts on that and what you've read. It's heartbreaking that one of our biggest things is like families can be together. Families can be together. And people participated in polygamy to be with their families together forever. Of course, it would be heartbreaking when the official declaration one came out, when they did it for their family, for their church, for their God. And then they're being told that they can't do it anymore. And it's just a hard stop with no real guidance. That's definitely a space that we need to be more respectful of and more mournful of. Thank you. I appreciate that. I tried to just share what was concise and short, but this book, it does have a lot of it in there. If people are really interested, I recommend reading The Polygamous Wives Writing Club by Paula Kelly Harline. And also start researching polyamory and non-monogamous relationship styles in general, maybe even relationship anarchy, because this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. This is really important to me. And if you're curious about the idea that you can love more than one person at a time, then I really recommend like following Polyphilia blog is probably the most prominent and like easily digestible introduction to it. Is it on Instagram or is it an actual blog? It's on Instagram. She also has TikToks. Leanne Yao. Yeah. Memes, advice, and education. Education? Like edu-gay-tion <laughs> instead of education. <laughs> but um, uh, That is good. Um, but yeah, so that's a really like lighthearted way to learn. Okay, well, let's finish up with talking about Official Declaration 2. Overall, I want to direct our listeners and readers to be on the block for this. They posted a video on YouTube. It's called Talking About Official Declaration 2, The Myths. Their channel on YouTube is Brother Jones and Knox. It does have closed captioning on YouTube. Okay, watch it on YouTube. Yeah. So looks like that's the most accessible way to watch it. James has done a lot of research and sharing on this topic. For our end, we just wanted to share a couple things. I feel like anytime we talk about official declaration two, which reinstated black men to the priesthood and allowed black members to again participate in temple ordinances, I feel like when we talk about it, we we kind of have the attitude that's like, 
black members waited patiently and faithfully for these blessings to come back into their lives. And then when it came, they rejoiced. Like we kind of put a positive, hopeful, faithful spin on it. But I wanted to share that this was a heartbreaking nuanced, difficult time for a lot of Black members of the church. If you look at Come Follow Me, it shares about other faithful Black members of the church and their accounts. And then below that, it shares other church resources, including like the Race and the Priesthood gospel topic. And then, so the one I wanted to read, it's the Revelations in Context portion. It's called Witnessing the Faithfulness. And it talks about official declaration too. I did read all these resources and I feel like this one in particular did a really good job at pulling the stories of black members and letting them tell their own stories on how they worked through this. It starts just speaking kind of generally about the history of the time. I'm going to read this. It's going to take a minute, but I really wanted to just like read it directly. The experience of countless black Africans over the past five centuries has echoed the experience of the ancient Israelites. From the early 1500s to 1888, generations of black Africans were taken from their homelands and enslaved in the Americas. By the early 1900s, almost all of Africa was occupied by foreign powers. On both sides of the Atlantic, slavery and imperialism led to deep divisions between white and black populations. And this is available on the church website, by the way. I feel like I would never see the word imperialism on the church website, but here it is. (laughs) Laws typically treated white people as superior. After the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized in 1830, some black people embraced the restored gospel, and a few black men were ordained to the priesthood. However, the racially divided culture of the time and threats of outside persecution posed challenges to racial integration in the church. Starting in the 1850s, the church followed a policy that restricted black members' access to full participation in the church by declaring them ineligible to be ordained to the priesthood or receive temple ordinances. For several generations, many black Latter-day Saints, like many black people around the world, made the most of difficult circumstances while hoping for a better future. The experiences of three couples, Charlotte Ando Kesson and William Aqua in Ghana, and so sorry if I'm pronouncing these wrong, Helvesio and Ruda Torino, Assis Martins in Brazil, and Joseph and Toe Liatula Freeman in the United States, shed light on what it was like to be Black Latter-day Saints in the years leading up to the 1978 revelation that made priesthood and temple blessings available to members of the church regardless of race. So this first story is Charlotte and William from Ghana. As a child, Charlotte attended an Anglican church with her parents and 12 siblings. A naturally religious person, Charlotte memorized all the hymns and even the words of Mass. When Charlotte was about 11, she met with a local pastor who, in addition to the Bible, also preached from a book of scripture called the Book of Mormon. Charlotte grew up hearing names such as Moroni, Nephi, and Ammon, as well as names such as Moses and Mark. Some members of the congregation dreamed and prophesied 
of a day when they would be dressed in white standing in a beautiful temple in Ghana. Before that day came, though, they knew that representatives from the church headquarters would need to come and officially make them part of the worldwide church. In 1978, the year Charlotte finished college, she began feeling pulled between different forces. On the one hand, Brother Johnson became increasingly convinced that the day was coming when the predominantly white church headquartered in the United States would recognize the Black Latter-day Saint congregations in Ghana, and he led multi-day fasts to hasten its coming. At the same time, Charlotte began dating William Aqua. William was happy to embrace her Latter-day Saint relatives and friends, but was skeptical of the church's teachings, critical of its poor physical facilities, and suspicious of white people in general, including those whom Ghana's Latter-day Saints were praying would welcome to their country. So mixed feelings there while they're working through how to move forward with the church. This next couple is from Brazil. It's Helvisio and Ruda. This is in the early 1970s. They were searching for religious truths in Brazil. They practiced a mix of religions. In 1972, two missionaries knocked on the door. They were interested but had one pressing concern, quote, given that your church is headquartered in the United States, a country with a history of racial conflict, how does your religion treat blacks? Are they allowed into the church? Helvisio remembered the old missionary nervously squirming in their chair before answering the missionaries asked to pray with the couple and their children. They then shared the story of the restoration and explained the priesthood and temple restriction to the best of their understanding. Helvisio felt satisfied enough by their answer to focus on on their other new teachings. Within a few months, encouraged by the spirit of the talks and the love of the members at church, Helvesio and Ruda were baptized. At the time, they were happy to let the gospel improve their lives and to wait, they assumed, until the millennium for some priesthood-related blessings. About a year after their baptisms, though, the Martins family was surprised when their patriarchal blessings suggested that they would be sealed together as a family in this life and that their son Marcus would serve a mission. Not wanting to be disappointed, they held to the understanding that they would wait for such blessings until Christ's return. At the same time, wanting to prepare for whatever the Lord planned, they opened a mission savings account for Marcus. Over in the next few years, the Martins family grew in the church, members gave them support, and sometimes uncomfortable expressions of sympathy. On one occasion, a bishop said he felt Helvesio's greatest challenge was to remain faithful in the church without being ordained to the priesthood. Bishop, Helvesio replied, I would be grateful if it were my greatest trial. In 1975, Helvesio and Ruda were invited to tour the construction of the Sao Paulo Brazil Temple because of Helvesio's calling as the church's regional public relations director. During the tour, they stopped at what they later learned was the site of the celestial room. A powerful spirit touched their hearts. They were hugging and crying and not, and they didn't understand why. Two years later, President Spencer W. Kimball called Helvesio to his side at the cornerstone ceremony of the temple. Brother Martins, he counseled, what is necessary for you is fidelity. Remain faithful and you will enjoy all the blessings of the gospel. So they were given all these promises, but then still they had questions about when it would come and still lived their lives trying to hang on to the reality of their situations rather than hope because hope was too painful and unknown. Okay, last story. This is 
Joseph Freeman and Toa Liatuala Freeman in the United States. They weren't members of the church and they were seeking for something more in their lives. Joseph said a prayer on the beach and then they visited the Polynesian Culture Center in Laie and met several Latter-day Saints whose gospel insights impressed them. They were baptized in 1973 and as a new member, Joseph's feelings about race and the church were mixed. He was nervous about being the only black member in his ward. In addition, the priesthood and temple restrictions stood between him and two of his deepest desires. He couldn't be a minister in the church, and he couldn't have the marriage he wanted. Toe, who wanted a temple marriage, broke off contact with Joseph as she felt her attraction to him growing. It disturbed Joseph that he couldn't find scriptural support for common justifications for the restriction, most of which involved speculation about the pre-mortal life. At the time, he found comfort in the promise that someday, at least in the millennium, black men would hold the priesthood. Even with the dilemmas he faced as a black man in the church, Joseph remained grateful for the gospel. It also became difficult for Toe to imagine living without him, though marrying Joseph would keep her from the temple ceiling she had long hoped for. She felt prompted to pursue the relationship. They went to a bishop about getting married to be counseled. The bishops first expressed typical concerns of the time about interracial and intercultural marriage, but promised that if they would fast and pray, the Holy Ghost would tell them what to do. They fasted and prayed, and the Spirit confirmed their choice. They were married in 1974. Anyway, I feel like sometimes we view it as like, oh, just an aspect of their lives that they couldn't do these things. But we talk about the temple and priesthood like it's such a crucial ordinance and path for your life. Yeah. And these people had to make choices around that, and their choices were taken away. And there's a lot of pain in what people had to experience through these times. And I wanted to make space for that and yeah. rejoice in the ban being lifted. Thank you for that. I I think that is really important. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N, on Facebook at facebook.com slash holyhuman. You can email us, holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to be involved. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman. We also want to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music. We access the song through freesound.org. Thank you so much to our listeners and readers and anyone who supports this podcast. We are so grateful for you. That's all, folks.